This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program and welcome to the second in a three-part series on housing. We have a situation at the moment in Australia that people generally refer to as a housing crisis. But that simple phrase signifies a very complex set of causes and effects and circumstances, one of which has to do with rent, and that's what we're talking about this week. The national rental vacancy rate is currently at its lowest level on record, which means demand for rental properties is surging, which means that rents are going up while wages are stagnating and people who might want to buy a place to live have been locked way out of the property market. Rent is one of those simple market economy mechanisms that seem very natural, like it's just an organic outgrowth of human society. But in fact, rent has a philosophical history, and it's a history that's been traced in a new book written by today's guest. His name is Joe Collins. He's a lecturer in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney, and his book is titled Rent. And Joe Collins is speaking with producer Dallas Rogers. Let's talk about some of the the big talking points of the housing crisis debate in Australia. What's the chief culprit in terms of like what underpins the housing crisis? Well, people talk about supply, right? There's not enough housing stock. So therefore, the demand is increasing and bidding up the prices and it's pricing people out. And, you know, and we can talk about various mechanisms through which that happens. Is it because we uh, restrict the release of new land? Is it because we have legislation in place that incentivizes investment and, and that's pricing people out? So on and so on. Like we could have this debate for hours. But the fundamental question here is how do we actually understand what is real and what is contrived? Because uh, I checked this morning, if we talk about a real housing crisis, are there not enough physical structures in this country to house the 25 million people that we have or whatever it is? Well, the answer is, if we wanted to, we could house every single person that required housing tomorrow, right? And that's not, okay, now you've got to billet a room to somebody that you don't want in your house. That's just take the stuff, just take the places where nobody lives at the moment and, and whack people in there. And all of a sudden, no, no more housing crisis, Right. So it's not a real housing crisis. It's one that has come about because of the systems that we've put in place deliberately. Whether or not everybody was was complicit in this, the point being here is that the housing crisis is not a real one of the lack of physical space to place people. It's one that has come about through the development of these complex social systems. So therefore, the solution also lays in that. We need to unpick that and we need to understand what's going on. Now, when it comes to how we we can understand the housing crisis through Marx, I would refer people to, uh, well, you don't have to take my word for it. You can take Marx's word for it through his best mate Engels. Engels wrote a book on on this issue called The Housing Question in, in response to various claims about how to solve the housing crisis in Europe in the 19th century. And very interestingly, You could give the book to somebody and you could then evaluate on the basis of arguments that were made in the 19th century, the proposals that are being put forward today to solve the 21st century housing crisis. Immediately, the question occurs to me, well, what is new about this housing crisis? We're told it's new, right? We're told... Oh, it's because of financialization. It's because of neoliberalism. You know, the privatization of, of housing means that we've restricted public housing uh, stocks and 
We've financialized uh, mortgages, which led to the subprime mortgage crisis and the GFC, so on and so on. So all of these newfangled concepts have been introduced to try and explain something that we know was actually happening in the 19th century, and it's documented in that way. And so the question then becomes, how can that be? And if we can see the same patterns occurring throughout this long historical period, does that then mean that there's something about the fundamental structure of these societies, these capitalist societies, that continues to generate the same crisis in a new form? And you would pin that on land and rent to some degree? Yes. Yes, I would. I mean, that's the short answer. Let's go right back to the beginning then, yes. or or at least back to the French Revolution. And in your book, you actually pin rent and rising rents and a particular type of rent to underwriting at least part of the French Revolution. Talk us through that. If we think about, I mean, we're not going to have a history lesson in the French Revolution, but let's just say, what exactly was it? Uh, it was the, the overthrow of a class of proprietors or landowners and the emergence of a new political system. So something that was fundamentally different from what preceded it. And it's widely considered to be this flashpoint in history whereby this old system of feudalism, where you had this kind of um, social order, was supplanted and ushered in the, the age of this kind of liberal democratic ethos. But what exactly is going on here and, and why does it happen? Yes, we can talk about the kind of triumph of reason and rationality and, and what have you, as others have described it. But I'm interested in the mechanics of, of how this uprising occurs and, and what exactly prompted people to start questioning the social order to which they belonged. So what compels peasants in large numbers to start chanting land and bread, uh, to start considering overthrowing the only social order that they knew existed? I, I, I want to draw attention here to a group of, let's call them economic theorists. They wouldn't have called themselves that because we didn't have a discipline of economics at the time. But there's a group known as the physiocrats. The physiocrats were wealthy landowners and they served as advisors to the French court, so the royal court. And these people had the time and uh, education and the leisure, I suppose, to sit around and theorize how society worked uh, because they didn't have to go and work in the fields and so on. And their major contribution to the history of economic thought is that, well, one, they're the first group of people to really conceptualize the economy as a a system as a whole. So we get uh, things that we still use today, so input-output tables, for example, and the notion that you can trace value uh, as it's produced, and then you can trace how it's distributed throughout this thing that we call an economy. And the obvious question that preoccupies them is, well, what is the source of value? What is value? Where does it come from? What are the consequences of it being distributed in certain ways? So you have to ask yourself, well, I mean, that's a very interesting philosophical question, but, but in the 18th century, when you look outside the window, where do you see value? And for them, it was immediately observable in the sphere of agriculture. So if you think about value as what's left over after you produce stuff and you consume it, uh, it's quite obvious that in agriculture, you can see agricultural workers are producing crops, you know, grains, or what have you, and they eat what they need in order to 
uh, exist and, and be able to do the work. But what's left over is then distributed around society to feed everyone else. And, and this is the kind of foundation of, of any kind of society, right? You need, you need to eat. So they theorize that the source of value is in fact land. And that value is unlocked or realized through the application of agricultural labor to land. So they ask this question, if land or nature is, is the source of value, then what does that mean for society? So we can talk about the ways in which crops feed people, people go to work and you know, prepare artisan goods and so on and so on, and this is the basis of an economy. But there is a, a perverse realisation that comes from this idea that land is the source of value. So the physiocrats and other landowners, they own land and land is the source of value. So therefore, they must be really important people in that society, right? Because if you own the thing that is the source of value, then you, you effectively can control certain aspects of social development and so on. Perversely, as I said, that also means that the owners of land do not actually do anything to contribute to that value. All they do is they let people go and work their land to produce that value. So the owners of land are at once, simultaneously, the most important people in society, but they're also kind of socially redundant, right? They, they serve no function except to own land, right? So it's this, I think, quite delightful contradiction that you can be the most important group in that society while simultaneously be being quite useless. <laughs> so there's this there's this notion of a sterile class. So they call this kind of sterile class, and they serve basically a parasitic function, if you think of, of the kind of technical meaning of, of that term. And it's this dual notion of land ownership being fundamentally important because you're controlling access to the source of value, but also being somewhat redundant. And that, I think lays the theoretical foundation for all of the politics that emerges on the basis of that that realization that actually we don't need you we're the ones that do the work you just own it and you know on the basis of that ownership you enjoy a life of wealth and privilege and we suffer under the yoke of uh, your oppression and i think that's quite a powerful moment because it tells us something about not just the significance of rent theory, but the significance of economic theory more broadly. So you see the work of the physiocrats as being important to later scholars, so people like the 18th century philosopher Adam Smith and then David Ricardo, is that right? Adam Smith is a really interesting figure because there is a direct connection, smith contact with the physiocrats and acted as a kind of direct bridge between two traditions of thinking in, in terms of uh, what comes to be known as English political economy or the emergence of a continental school of thought that looks at questions of value. And it's also the timing of, of Smith's lifetime that I think is incredibly important. So Smith obviously is the precursor to Ricardo. The publication of Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations is one of the most kind of celebrated dates in the history of economic thought. But in terms of Smith's contribution to rent theory, well, people often claim that Adam Smith is the father of modern economics, right? So the, the idea being that Smith is held up as this kind of hero of free markets, and that's what kicks off this long and glorious history of, of economic thought. 
it's interesting to read what Smith actually wrote about markets, um, you know, in this uh, forgotten volume, the, the theory of moral sentiments that actually warned against the excesses of free markets. But uh, Smith was really quite perplexed by the notion that land was obviously part of the production process, but Smith was in the process of developing what people now call a, a labour theory of value, the notion that value is somehow connected to the human input of, of labour. And Smith could not get over the fact that even after you take away all of the inputs from human labour, there is still something of value in the contribution of land, right? So this contribution of nature. Now, when it gets to David Ricardo, Ricardo completely expunges this notion of a contribution to value from land. Land for Ricardo is the free gift of nature and it's free, right? It's, it's, not, it's not something that contributes in any kind of meaningful way to value. Whereas for Smith, Smith's still struggling with this idea that obviously it's not just human labour that creates value. There's got to be something to do with land. Now, the notion that land itself is, is productive of value is physiocratic, right? So as, as, we, as we stated earlier, uh, it was the physiocrats that uh, saw the source of value as land. And so there's this relationship between humans and land that is constitutive of value. Whereas by the time you get to David Ricardo and the development of what we now understand as the classical school of political economy, that aspect of landed property that emerges in considerations of value has been completely expunged. And that's really important. And we'll get to why in a minute when we get to modern rent theory, because this is the most useful aspect of, of Smith's contribution to the history of economic thought, is the conflict in, in his own mind about what to do with this question of land. How do we understand how land features in our concept of value and the production of surplus value and the way in which that value is distributed? In terms of linking up the physiocratic tradition and the, the developments in English political economy, I think Smith plays a fundamental role and it, Smith creates this uh, this kind of signpost in the history of economic thought that people have forgotten about completely. Like nobody, nobody looks back and, and says, oh, geez, there's this unsettled debate between Smith and Ricardo uh, about the role of landed property when it comes to the determination of rents. But, but I think they should, because in that tension, I think you'll find some really interesting uh, consequences to consider when it comes to these new buzzwords like rentier capitalism. This is RN, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone, and this week, producer Dallas Rogers is talking with Joe Collins about his new book, Rent. It's the second program in a three-part series on housing, and if you missed part one, you can find it on The Philosopher's Zone website or via the ABC Listen app. Does the context in which Smith is writing, which is at this moment of colonisation and the questions of land that you're talking about, where land in the colonies is coming into conflict with land at home, is this important for Smith? Do you think Smith's inquiry into land and value here? Absolutely. And the reason it's important is because there's this notion of new land. Now, we can talk about a decolonial reading of that 
notion, which obviously it's not new land for the people already there, and we can talk about all of that. We're going to go into that into this series, actually. Right, yep. right. Excellent, excellent. Uh, but for the purposes of a kind of you know, sterile and, and sanitised economic theory, we can say, in Smith's estimation, it's it's new land. And that new land is not yet cultivated, so therefore bringing new land into cultivation obviously increases the absolute stock of, of land that can be cultivated, and therefore that has consequences for the existing stock, right? In the sense that, as with the Corn Laws debates with Ricardo, if you start bringing new land into cultivation, the owners of that old land all of a sudden need to compete with what can be done with the new land. And I think this is a, a part of the story that is often overlooked. It's not just about the relationship between new land, price, the production of grain, and so on. It's the fact that this new land already existed, but it's new in what sense? It's new in the sense that it is now brought into a system of property rights that did not apply to this land. And I think that's fundamentally important because it's easy to get lost in this jargon. We say property rights or systems of property rights, ownership control. What are we actually talking about? We're talking about land that physically exists, people that live on that land, and then we're saying, okay, we have a system of, of legal title that now applies to this, and that extinguishes everything previously, right? So I think it's, it's quite important, and I'm, I'm really uh, delighted to hear that, that this is going to be taken into further detail in, in discussions down the track. But the point here is that, yes, what's happening in the colonies is, is fundamentally important to what's happening with these debates you know, between Smith and Ricardo. And not least of all, if we situate the physiocrats, Smith, Ricardo, think of the dates, right? 1789, um, 1776 is the, the publication of The Wealth of Nations. I mean, what else is happening in 1776, right? So we have, we have uh, the, 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 the emergence of the United States uh, of America. They're, they're literally drafting the policies to set up a colony in New South Wales. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> And I guess the next big pivot point for us here is Karl Marx and the emergence of Karl Marx, who's really actually seen by many as the father of political economy. But of course, you've uh, destabilized that idea for us a little bit here. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, if we try to situate or locate Marx in this narrative that we're building, Marx is born in 1818. And is, you know, enjoys this wonderfully um, productive life as a, a writer and commentator, uh, while living in, in relatively impoverished conditions, mind you. And we, we won't get into the biographical details, but the context of Marx's contribution is in a debate with Smith and Ricardo. So Marx is in dialogue with with people like Smith and Ricardo, and is refining the body of thought that we now understand as classical political economy. So in, in terms of rent, Marx is doing the, the research for his theory of rent in the early 1860s, spends a couple of years learning how to read Russian, goes and reads all of these um, really boring accounts of Russian land titles and so on, you know, as you do. Um, <laughs> and on the basis of, of that study and also on the basis of a critique of every single contribution to the history of economic thought up until that time, we see this theory of rent emerging. And, you know, it's, it's there's this funny letter uh, that Marx sends to Engels where he talks about the fact that 
I finally gotten to the bottom of Ricardo's swindle and, and he refers to this shitty rent business, you know. I think it's a, it's just a classic line. You, you mentioned that in the book. I think it's the title of one of the sections of a chapter. It is, it is indeed. And the point here is Marx makes this really insightful remark in that letter to, to Engels about the fundamental mistake that, that Ricardo's made. And this is, to get a bit technical here, Ricardo conflates price and value. And this notion that there are these two distinct conceptual categories called price and value would be totally alien to modern economic theory, right? Price is value as far as economics is concerned. If you want to know the value of something, look at its price. If you want to understand how value is distributed, produced and so on, then you look at markets and you look at the the determination of price. Now, Prior to the 1870s, this was not the case. Uh, People considered the interaction of price and value as two distinct analytical categories. So this is the context of the Ricardo-Marx debate. And to put it really simply, the way that I see it, if Adam Smith and David Ricardo's theories of rent allow us to answer the question, what is rent? Then Marx's contribution confronts that theory with the question, why does rent exist at all? And I'm not in any way suggesting that we should be dismissive of Ricardo and, and Smith's contributions or indeed others who have applied those notions of rent to empirical studies. What I'm suggesting is that if you layer Marx's question on top of those, it can, it can lead to really interesting results. Now, just to just to complicate things a little bit more, if Marx is asking why does rent exist, then it presupposes a theory of landed property. And when we say landed property, I mean it is a bit of a, a sort of jargonistic term. Uh, we're talking about the way in which land is property, right? So landed property is, is simply that. How how do we understand land as property? Um, you know, we're talking about property rights, uh, a system where those property rights can be exchanged, so on and so on. So the question there is, okay, can land be owned? If the answer is yes, then you have to have a theory of landed property. Now, some have, have taken Marx to mean just that, and they've stopped there. And on the basis of that, they've developed uh, an understanding of Marxist rent theory as uh, really an embryonic form of a theory of monopoly where they say, okay, there's a class of people who can own land, and if they monopolize the ownership of land, then that means they can do all sorts of things to impede um, agriculture, mining, so on and so on. Now, I think we can push it a little bit further. I, I don't think Marx stops there. I actually think that what Marx is saying is it's not just that land can be owned, because land being owned is not, peculiar, is not unique to capitalism. And Marx is interested in developing a set of concepts to understand capitalism. What is unique to capitalism, in, in Marx's view, is the specific way in which land is owned. So it's not that land just can be owned, it's how exactly is land owned, right? And if you think about this question, then that means, okay, I can't actually have a general theory of rent, right? I can't say... Here's a theory of rent, go and apply it to anywhere in the world at any time, right? A universally applicable theory. What what that tells you is if the theory of rent depends upon a 
theory of landed property that needs to understand how exactly land is owned, you need a historically and geographically specific theory of landed property. And that changes. That changes in space and time. Right? So therefore, the theory of rent changes in space and time. If we drag Marx into the 21st century and we think he had quite a lot to say about housing, actually, if we think about Marx today and housing, what do we take from that? Look, I like this image of dragging Marx in, into the 21st century because, and, and all, the, all the connotations that the word drag has in current sort of uh, the current vernacular, <laughs> uh, because people do drag Marx in the sense that they are very critical of, of Marx and all, to the point of being almost dismissive. Oh, yeah, Marx had some interesting things to say about you know, 19th century capitalism, but when it comes to the 21st century, totally irrelevant. But if we... If we drag Marx into the 21st century in the literal sense, then, then what Marx's theory of rent is, is about land. I would even go so far as to say that Marx's theory of rent is really an attempt to understand capitalist landed property. Right? If we ask this question, why does rent exist? Because it's, it's really easy to ask the what is. Like The what is question is, how much rent do you pay? How often is it going to be paid? And to who? All right, that, that's easy. But why is rent being paid? That's, that says, okay, you need to understand the social context that allows somebody to say, no, you must pay me for access to this land. Now, that is occurring upstream and downstream before you ever get to the house. Okay, so it's the kicking of the rent relation, let's call it that. It's the kicking of the rent relation into the upstream and downstream activities before you get to the end user that I find really interesting. And if we go back to your original question, how do we drag Marx into the 21st century? Well, that's how. If you drag Marx into the 21st century, all of a sudden you get this, this blown up version of a house. So you're not just looking at uh, you know, this, this flash new apartment in Sydney's inner west. You're actually looking at this global uh, agglomeration of, of social processes and people. All right, <laughs> Let's not forget, we're, we're not just talking about these kind of abstract processes. We're talking about people. And this is where the rentier capitalism stuff, I think, makes a really uh, interesting and, and uh, significant contribution to understanding the current political and economic moment. And very interestingly, it appears to erode the vital driver of capitalism, well, at least according to the, the story that we're told. You think about what capitalism is supposed to be about, and it's this intensely productive and dynamic system, and that has always been lauded as the the redeeming feature of capitalism, that it's dynamic and that it produces lots and lots of things. So, you know, we don't have to deal with starvation because there's lots, lots of food and so on and so on. In fact, even Marx and Engels wrote a page and a half about this in the Communist Manifesto, talking about all the wonderful things that, that the bourgeoisie have done. The rentier capitalism school says, well, that's over now, right? So they say the rentiers of this world are engaged in non-productive activities. They're not interested in growing the economic pie. Uh, they're just interested in taking bigger slices of the existing pie. So in one sense, rentier capitalism is the story of the death of capitalism in the sense that it's no, it's no, it's no longer dynamic. It's no longer uh, innovative. It's no longer trying to push frontiers. It's now stagnating. Joe Collins, lecturer in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. He's the author of Rent, which is part of the What is Political Economy series published by Wiley. And Joe Collins was speaking there with producer Dallas Rogers. 
And here in the Philosopher's Zone, this has been part two of a three-part series on housing. You can catch the first episode on the Philosopher's Zone website or the ABC Listen app. And I hope you can join me next week for the third and final episode, which looks at Aboriginal land rights and property development. I'm David Rutledge. See you then.